Good morning and welcome to Emmett Audio. This is the May Virtual Apprenticeship Challenge version of the podcast where all month I'm going to be covering in depth all of the spoon carving techniques that I teach in my month long spoon carving lesson. So, um, uh, as behooves me, uh, it's worth mentioning that there are, if you're, if you're taking this course and you're listening to the podcast, some of this stuff is going to be really improved by you watching a video, but, uh, I'm hopeful that I'm going to articulate some things here that I just didn't articulate in a video because it didn't occur to me to do so. So I think both is a good idea. And the hope is that you can find this useful to listen to while you carve, while you practice your sharpening, while you're in the car driving, while you're going for your morning walk with the dogs. Um, but certainly check out my videos on IGTV and my YouTube channel, which is just my name. Let's talk about sharpening. And in this video, uh, sorry, <laughs> not in this video, in this podcast, uh, my intent is not to um, try to cover exactly how to sharpen very specifically, but instead to try and touch on the important details to keep in mind while you are sharpening. Because the truth is there are many different ways to sharpen, excuse me, and they can work as long as you get the details right. And surprisingly, the details are kind of the same from system to system. Now, obviously, sort of the specifics of sort of pitfalls of each individual system are going to be a little bit different, but uh, what you're shooting for is the same. And in this episode, I'm basically just assuming that what I'm going to be talking about is sharpening straight knives, Lloyd knives, the Mora 106. Um, so, the three best sharpeners, or the three people I know who have the most experience with sharpening that I interact with daily are myself, no surprise there, um, I know myself pretty well, Matt White, who makes my knives and sharpens these blades for a living, and Tom Scandian in Australia. Interestingly, all three of us have three different ways of sharpening, and clearly all three of us uh, are able to make our systems work. Now, of the three systems, I would say that mine is probably the least precise, but what mine lacks in precision, it makes up for in cheapness and in its ability to be grasped by beginners uh, straight away, and it's, a, it's portability with a uh, little muss and fuss. Let me describe the three different systems, and then I'll talk about their similarities. Tom uses a system where he has a block that has float glass, which is a glass that's essentially, I think it's floated on, it's like poured on top of molten metal to make it perfectly flat. Um, and he has that on top of a piece of hardwood with a non-skid base, creating a block that he can then adhere sandpaper to. Um, and the flatness and hardness of the glass means that he gets uh, perfect precision flatness. Um, and it's designed to be used with both hands where you're guiding the knife on this sandpaper. I think he's gone through several stages where at first he was using a spray adhesive and maybe now he just uses little bits of water. Hey, Willa, whatever that is, leave it. I'm walking the dogs in case you can't tell. 
Willa just found something. What is it, Willa? Oh, it's like a bit of bone. Maisie, leave it. Hey, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Come on. And, um, okay, so now Matt uses a system that I'm going to be exploring next, uh, which is, come on, Maisie, let's go. Leave the bone. Um, which is diamond plates, a fine, coarse, double-sided diamond plate, one side fine, one side coarse, mounted on a block to make it get it sort of up off the table enough. Um, And he uses that, and then for the finer grits, he uses sandpaper sort of wrapped around the the plate and sort of pinched down into place on the block. Uh, To see Matt's process, visit uh, at Matt White underscore TMW, which stands for Temple Mountain Woodcraft. Um, So that's Matt's process. And again, that is a two-handed on-the-table method. My process is a little different. And I, what I do is I wrap sandpaper. And again, when we, when I say sandpaper, all of us are using the same type of sandpaper. It's automotive grit sandpaper. And there's nothing special about it in terms of brand or anything like that. Although I think various people have various brand favorites. I don't. Uh, but basically, it's automotive grit in the sense that that's the only type of sandpaper that goes up into the really high grits that's sort of readily available. And we all get it on Amazon because your local stores aren't going to carry that as a specialty product. But it's pretty inexpensive, you know, to get a 96-pack of automotive grit paper in a mix of grits ranging from 400 to 3,000, which is what I'd recommend someone start out with. That, for me, with Amazon Prime is 12 bucks. So really inexpensive. And that's what all of us use when I say sandpaper. So... I use that sandpaper held as tightly as I can pinch it around a block. For me, it was originally a kid's building block. Um, So like picture like wooden building blocks made by chopping up two by fours. That's what it was. It was like a six inch length of essentially two by four, probably a little bit higher quality um, with rounded corners. And... Uh, and I would hold the sandpaper wrapped around that and then sharpen on that surface. Now, to actually see that, you're going to have to go look at a video, but here's the important thing about that process. I found that there was the benefit of not using spray adhesive to put the um, sandpaper onto the block or to wrap it in any way meant that I was more uh, more likely to change out the sandpaper when it needed changing out. I'm a lazy human being. And if there is friction in a process, I am less likely to do what I know I ought to do. So for instance, if I were to use spray adhesive to put sandpaper down on a block, which is what a lot of people do, when that sandpaper started to lose its aggressiveness and slick over with with um, metal slurry, because of that friction of having to peel it off and throw it out and apply more spray adhesive, I just probably would use it longer than would be appropriate or helpful. And so I f- would find myself, um, you know, trying to pinch pennies in a really stupid way. 
Um, and so what I liked about having the sandpaper wrapped around the block loosely with my fingers is that it, it works well enough and, and there's no friction to me sort of shuffling the sandpaper around to a fresh section. So the other thing that I like about my system, besides it's being very portable, is that, um, is that when I do my sharpening, I'm holding the block in my hand and I'm holding the knife in my other hand and everything happens up in the air. So I'm not resting my forearms on my knees. I'm not resting them on the table. Everything is just sort of held up in front of me, not out in front of me, but close to my body. But because both the block with the sandpaper and the knife are in play in space, that shifts my focus so that what I'm paying attention to is the connection of the two. And this is really the key for me. It was the, it was the key shift for me. When I was using sharpening systems where the block was on a table or a bench, which I used to do, I felt like my focus was on, am I holding the knife right? Am I making the pass right? And I came to realize, well, uh, come on, let's go. I came to realize that when you fix one or the other in space, right, by putting it on a table, it's not going to move. You go from having an infinite number of ways in which the two can connect and still be properly um, properly connected to get the right uh, blade angle to the sandpaper, right? There's a million ways in which that can be true if both are in play. You just adjust one to the other. When you fix one by placing it on a table, all of a sudden those million ways that it can be right spiral all the way down to just one. There's only one way that you can pass a knife across a block that is on a table and have it be the correct way. And I was struggling to do it that one correct way. Now, you watch Tom and you watch Matt do it, they're clearly doing it the correct way. So I would encourage everybody to watch their videos also and decide if you're going to try doing it their way because clearly they have good results. And in fact, I'm going to start exploring Matt's way of sharpening to see if I now prefer it better. Now that I know what I know and feel what I feel and understand the feedback that I understand, am I in a better position to start using Matt's system? What I will say is if you look at all three of our systems, don't just mix and match. I just had a message from a guy this morning, or maybe it was last night, who asked me about his sharpening. He said he was struggling and then he described what he was doing and it was a total mashup of some of what Matt does, some of what Tom does, some of what I do, and some that I don't know where he got it from. And partly that's on me. It makes me realize that I wasn't being clear enough. But partly it makes me realize that I need to say this, which is when you watch me or Tom or Matt do what we do, all of the details matter. They're not by accident. And they don't necessarily transfer from one to the other. When I talk about pay attention to the connection of one to the other or 
when I talk about how important it is to look at the feedback on your blade and, you know, the broader principles will transfer, but if you watch my sharpening video and try and do it like me, make sure you get all the details exactly the same, as close you can, and, and only when you're getting good results should you then think, well, how can I improve this system? Don't leap to how am I gonna create a system for me? I would say copy an existing system once you're getting good results that you're happy with, figure out how you can tweak it, and that's how you get to a, a system that's tailored for you. So, here's the, here's the, 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 the thing. With Tom and Matt's system, come on, Willa, let's go. Past the bone, we're walking now, back past the deer bone or whatever it is. No, Willa, come. Let's go, Maisie, leave it. Let's go. Come on, Maisie. Good girls. So, the trick with Sloyd knives is that the lowest grit, whatever that lowest grit is, and I would generally recommend you not go below 400 grit or coarse if you're using a, a stone or diamond plate that doesn't have a grit number. I would recommend that you don't go below that because it just gets too bumpy and the knife starts to sort of bump along and it's not precise enough. So don't go below 400 grit or coarse. You wanna stick with that lowest grit and you don't actually need to, so let me back up a second. If your knife only needs a little touch up, if you're staying on top of it, you don't necessarily need to go to that lowest grit. You can often start at the higher grit and in just a couple passes, remove any secondary bevel that might exist at the edge of the blade. And so, but the lowest I would ever go is 400 to correct, um, to correct something that's, you know, a, a secondary bevel that's really bad. Now, what is a secondary bevel? A secondary bevel is when either through just getting dulled by carving or from improper sharpening, you have created a rounding at the edge. Generally, to the extent that you'd only see it under a microscope. Willa, come on, let's go. Willa, come on. No. Willa, no. Hey, no. Leave it, let's go. I think she might have found a skeleton. Come on, Willa, no. Out to the road, good girl. Um, so, either carving, will create a rounding at the edge, just that you would see if you were like looking at it under a microscope under cross section, so it's really hard to see under normal circumstances. Or improper sharpening will create a secondary bevel, which is where instead of the main bevel of the knife coming to a true sharp triangle at the edge, instead you have this little almost imperceptible spot right at the very edge that's at a, that's at a steeper angle. That is going to dramatically change the way your knife feels. And that is the thing that you're trying to eliminate when you sharpen. It's that simple. You're trying to eliminate that secondary bevel and get back to a true sharp triangle. Now, here's the key bit of information. You want to stick with whatever lowest grit you have decided to start with. And this is based on your gut sense of 
how bad that secondary bevel is. If it's bad, go to 400 or coarse. If it's not too bad, start at 800 or 1,000 um, and go from there. You need to stick with that lowest grit for whatever you're doing until that secondary bevel is gone and the edge is a true sharp point again. That is the one and only key to sharpening and that's the part that a lot of people get wrong. So, um, the real question then becomes, how do you know that you've eliminated that secondary bevel? And the way that I do it is something that I call the flash method, where I hold the knife so that the edge is facing a window or a, or a source of light coming from the side. It's helpful if you're not under direct overhead light, especially fluorescent lights, because what you need is to be able to twist the knife back and forth, and you'll see that the bevel, the sloyd bevel, which is that the, the flat angle that goes out to the edge, depending on how you twist it in the light of the window, it will either be dark or flashing light. It'll either be in the shadow or light. Shadow, light, shadow, light. Twist it back and forth. Now, and this usually works best after you've made a few passes so that you can really see the difference between your secondary bevel and the new flat plane that you're creating. What you're going to see, if there is a secondary bevel, is that right on the balance point between the shadow and the light of the, of the bevel, what you're going to see is a very thin line of light right at the edge if there is a secondary bevel because the secondary bevel being at a different angle from the sloyd bevel itself, the main bevel, is going to catch that light a fraction of a degree as you're twisting it before the main bevel itself. And so it will show up as a thin little line of light right at the edge of your knife when the main bevel is still in shadow. And you should be able to see this on either, you want to check this on either side of your knife because it, it might be different from one side to the other, right? Depending on how careful you were sharpening, a number of variables. But you want to check it on both sides of your knife edge. Now, the reason I like this system is that it conveys a lot of information. It tells you exactly where on the edge that secondary bevel exists because as you sharpen, you're going to, that secondary bevel is going to be eliminated and it usually gets eliminated closer to the handle first and slowly migrates up to the tip until the tip is the last bit still have some secondary bevel. That just has to do with which parts of the knife get the most action when you're passing it across your abrasive surface. But so you get to see exactly where the secondary bevel still remains and by the by the degree of how strong the flash is you get to see how um, you get to see how strong the secondary bevel is and you'll watch it go from being, you know, however strong it is down to less and less and less and less and less. And the trick is you want to keep going with your sharpening on that lowest grit until it is completely gone. There is no point in going up through the grits and there's no point in even counting the number of passes with your lowest grit. The point is to look at the information you're getting from the blade and use that to determine when you are done with this step. So I can't tell you, oh, it only takes six passes to do this. I can't tell you, 
you know, uh, I can't tell you anything except to just look at, look for this flash of light and when it is completely gone and your bevel is either all in shadow or all in light, there is no in between where you have that little strip of light at the edge, then you're ready to move up in through the grits. Now, Tom and Matt both like using the Sharpie method where you scribble Sharpie or some other marker on the bevel of the knife and then you can see when you've completely scraped it off. I feel like that will often, um, while that can work, I think it's, I have found it to be a distraction for my students because I think the thing that they need to focus on is not, is the Sharpie gone on the rest of the bevel? It's, is the Sharpie gone right at the very edge? And often, probably the most common thing that people do is they don't go far enough. And so they'll have a tiny little bit of Sharpie at the edge. But guess what? If you put Sharpie on the edge of your knife blade, and then you try and do the flash method, you're not going to see that little flash of light because you painted Sharpie on it. So it, using Sharpie does not pair well with using the flash method because you're essentially putting camouflage paint on the very thing that you're trying to look for. So if you're going to use Sharpie, I would suggest getting like a magnifying glass or something and looking at the edge that way. But honestly, I think not using Sharpie and looking for the flash of light is faster, easier, and more accurate because it gives you richness of information. And you can tell with a glance, with just your eyes, without a magnifying glass, exactly where on the edge you need to keep going and to what degree. That's something that is much harder and more laborious to get all that information using the Sharpie method. Now, once you have gone far enough and you've completely eliminated any secondary bevel, you're ready to walk your way up through the grits of sandpaper. And this is where there is a rule of thumb that I'm going to give you. The rule of thumb is this. Um, if you are roughly doubling the grit number, say you're going from 800 to 1500, you want to do 10 to 15 passes per side of the knife. Now, obviously, this is just a rule of thumb. If you've used up your sandpapers so that the 1500 is behaving like 3000 because it's all slicked over, well, then this rule of thumb doesn't work. If you're jumping more than double, let's say you're going from 800 to 2000, well, then obviously you need to use more passes because all that you're trying to do at this stage is eliminate the coarser scratch marks with the finer scratch marks. So each time you double, you want to do 10 to 15 passes. So I, let's say I'm going from 1,000 to 2,000, then I'm going to 3,000. Well, then I might do uh, you know, I might do 10 to 15 passes with that first one, because I'm going from 1,000 to 2,000. And then I might do just 10 passes with the second one, because I'm less than doubling if that makes sense. Um, what you don't want to do is taper down the number of passes you do with each one. It doesn't work if you do six passes to start and then do two passes with the next one and then do one pass on each side as you go to the finest grid. It just doesn't work that way. You have to do the 10 to 15 because each 
sandpaper grit is progressively less aggressive and so it takes the same number of passes even though it's removing less material if that makes sense now we're going to get into stropping in a different episode but it is possible in theory to go from thousand grit to stropping will you get as good results Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how good you are at stropping, how good your strop is. Will you get as good results as if you go to 3,000 grit or 4,000 grit on a stone? Like I have a 1,000 and then a 4,000 double-sided stone. And then strop? No. You'll get better results if you do the 4,000. So there are shortcuts you can take. But I would recommend you don't take those shortcuts until you know what it feels like to do it the way that doesn't have shortcuts. And, shoot, there was one other thing I was going to say. You don't need to strop. You could stop at 3,000 and have a reasonable edge on your knife. I did that for years. I then, when I started stropping, found, when I actually got a good strop and didn't just make a crummy strop, that stropping improved the knife finish that I was leaving. Now, one final detail that's going to confound everything I just said, which is this. When you are sharpening, it is important to do as little as needed while still doing enough. As, I'm sorry, as little as possible while still doing enough. The concept is this. Every pass that you take with your knife on the abrasive surface is an opportunity for you to mess things up. And so it does not benefit you to go with that coarsest grit for half an hour way past the point where you've eliminated the secondary bevel because guess what your form is going to get sloppy if you're doing it for half an hour you're probably going to create more problems you're going to create more rounding than you had when you started out so i can't tell you how many passes it's going to take to eliminate that secondary bevel at the very beginning of the process but you only want to do that amount and no more you don't get prizes for doing more it just uh gives you opportunities to mess things up so only do as much as needed while still doing enough you don't get prizes for doing too little you don't get prizes for doing too much you have to do exactly the right amount and you know when you've done the right amount by using the flash method or the sharpie method with a magnifying loop then you do the proper number of passes to bring that scratch pattern up to being very polished don't be fooled by having a polished bevel because you've gone up to some ridiculously high grit. That doesn't mean that your edge is sharp. It just means you have a polished bevel. What, the only thing that matters is what's happening at the very edge of your knife. And while the bevel polish can tell you a lot about whether your bevel is truly flat or whether it's slightly convexed over time from imprecise sharpening, we'll get into that in a different episode, what matters is your edge, not the bevel. And so when you see pictures on Instagram of people showing how shiny and mirror-like their bevels are, approach that with skepticism. From someone like Tom, it just means that he got a mirror-like polish and his edge, I'm sure, is plenty sharp. From someone who is just practicing their sharpening and is showing the mirrored polish as proof that they did a good job, I don't see that as proof of anything. I see that as the mirror polish makes for a good picture but it doesn't necessarily translate to a good finished 
surface from your cut, nor does it translate to having a knife that cuts easily. So, choose a system, mine, toms, or mats, immerse yourself in everything we've done about that system, and copy it perfectly. Understand that system, try another system, copy it perfectly. Don't mix and match. Once you understand the system and you're getting good results and you can articulate why certain things matter and certain things don't, then start piecing together what sort of system you want. All of our systems have evolved over time, so it's not that these systems are perfect and it's not that they can't evolve. My point, however, is that if you don't know what is possible, you have no basis for comparison of knowing why something is working or isn't working. I hope this helps. Thanks for listening.